a pastor in Cuba was murdered. Questions still remain about who killed him. But his congregation didn't shrink back in fear. In fact, the pastor's sons are working harder than ever to spread the gospel. VOM's Jonathan Ekman was in Cuba not long ago and heard the story. I think they just have a different view of life and ministry than, than I have sometimes. I, th- I think, yeah, this happened to our dad, could happen to us. But we have this, this window of opportunity to impact our people, this nation, with the gospel. And we're going to seize it, and we're going to do everything that we can. I- I've met with those brothers several times, and I always walk away from those meetings just amazed. Other leaders in Cuba have said, this is the future of the church. I think it's just a a Jesus-centered approach to life. In many of the leaders that we work with, that is their focus. It's on Christ, what Christ has called them to do. The rest of the things are just details. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and uh, I'm in the studio today in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, with our Vice President for International Ministry here at VOM, Jonathan Ekman. Jonathan, welcome back to VOM Radio. Thank you, Todd. It's great to be with you. And uh, we're going to talk today, we're going to kind of interview each other because both of us had the opportunity a couple of months back to travel to Cuba and to meet with Christians there to kind of get a sense of, of what persecution looks like in Cuba, what the church is doing, how the church is growing, some exciting things. So that's what we're going to be talking about today on VOM Radio Jonathan, I know this was your first trip to Cuba. Yes. It was mine also. Yeah. What did you see in terms of persecution, maybe how it's how it's different from other places where you've been, how maybe it's similar to some other persecution that you've seen around the world? You know, it was it was very similar to some situations we've seen in other places in the world, for example, Burma, uh, where you see the government actually change their tactic for persecution. Some people call it smart persecution, uh, where they're, they're no longer kicking down doors and dragging people to prison. It's a lot more pressure on the church and on individual Christians, a lot more consequences for serving or following Christ. And what are some of those consequences? Christians lose the opportunity to have a job or to advance in their job. We see children of pastors and leaders who lose opportunities for education, all the way up to nationalizing church vans and and things like that. Anything that the government can do to restrict and re- honestly punish the church. One of the things that that really impacted me and uh, has made me think, there were several of the pastors that told us they know every Sunday when they go to church, there are spies sitting in their congregation waiting for them to say something wrong, waiting for them to say anything that can be used against them. And they know that. (laughs) This was the thing that kind of blew my mind. You know, hey, I wake up Sunday morning, I go to church, I know there's somebody in my congregation that wants to destroy me, and yet they keep going. It's amazing, isn't it? And I'll never forget, Todd, meeting with a pastor who told us about this, having spies there, and about the time 
very recently when one of those spies actually came to him and confessed that he was had been coming to their church and was was going to leave something that would get the church in trouble, some kind of literature or something. And he, he told the story how every time he started to, to plant this evidence against the church, someone would come up and he wouldn't be able to leave it. And that happened for several weeks. And finally, he felt convicted because the great thing is the spy is sitting there listening for something to to uh, turn the pastor in for, but he's also hearing the Word of God preached. They're listening very closely. They are that's, listening that's a, very closely. That's a good thing. I, yeah. What impressed you about the Christians in Cuba that we met? I think just their strength and their resolve. I, I don't know about you, but when I was there, I was thinking, what would I do in this situation? I mean, it's that if you're a pastor and every time you stand in the pulpit, you know that there are people in that crowd who want to do you harm. How do you continue to do that? How do you continue to love people? How do you continue to minister to people, knowing that some of them could be out yeah. to get you? You stand at the back of the church after your Sunday sermon shaking hands, and you think, is this the one that was the spy? Is this the one? How do you, like you say, how do you keep loving people and and being Jesus to them, knowing some of them want to betray you? And I think it was fascinating that some of them know who the spies are, yeah. and they still welcome <laughs> them back, right? Yeah, a- amazing example. One of the things we heard was about, and like you talked about, the pressure that the government brings to bear. I thought it was fascinating, some of the stories about buildings, church buildings. And I know in one case, we visited a building that they had waited seven years to get permission to build the building. They literally had all the materials on the property sitting there because as soon as they got the permission, they put up the building. They didn't want to wait a week or a month or and maybe that permission gets withdrawn. Talk about some of the other ways that the government is really bringing pressure to bear on the church. Well, I, I think just by continually taking opportunities away from the church. So I mentioned earlier nationalizing church fans. Uh, this is something that's going on where you know, there are three kinds of license plates in Cuba. There's, there's private, which only very few people have. There's taxis or tourists. And then there's B, which is basically it's a state vehicle. So if your, your car has a, a B license plate, technically it belongs to the state, and you are obligated to pick people up and help them get where they want to go. It's public transportation in some ways. And they're trying to force all the church fans to have this B license plate, which would allow the, the authorities to fill those church fans with travelers on Sunday mornings rather than allowing them to pick up church members. So things like that that we couldn't imagine here in the yeah, U.S. We just can't even wrap our mind around Right. And, and as I said earlier, this is this is kind of that new type of persecution we see, especially in formerly uh, military kind of government countries, Burma being another example, where they don't kick the door in, they don't beat people in the street, they just make it very, very difficult, not only to live, but especially to minister, to reach out to other people. One of the things, obviously, that has happened in Cuba in the last couple of years is Fidel Castro died. Uh, His brother Raul is now the leader. Has that changed anything for the church there or the way the government? Is that a part of this sort of transition from kicking in the doors to just bringing pressure? I think it certainly plays a role. I think, you know, with the death of Fidel, I think Cuba wanted to be seen as less of an international pariah. So they've done simple things, kind of surface things, but at the at the heart of it, 
you know, at the at the church level, at the individual citizen level, almost nothing has changed. One of the high points of our our trip was uh, we made a pastor cry. <laughs> we did make a pastor cry. <laughs> Tell that story because it it really was a pretty powerful experience. Yeah. So we had a a request for a project come in a few weeks before we left, and this was a very strategic request for material, and. We were able to approve that, and I, we were really excited to go because we were going to get to tell him face-to-face. So one of our field leaders who was there with us when we arrived at this, this gentleman's house said, Brother, they have approved the project. The, you know, they're going to provide the funds that you need. And I'll, I'll never forget, he looked at him and he said, Do not lie to me. And our field leader said, Oh, you can go ask the jefe of the jefe, the boss. The boss is here. <laughs> and uh, he came up to me and, and he said, Is it true? Is it true that that was approved? And I said, yes, brother, that's approved. And he broke down and wept uh, because of, of the need that he had and our ability to meet it would expand the gospel, would expand the kingdom in Cuba. And it was, it was a very humbling thing, but also one of those things that for our international team, it, it's, it's so amazing to be used by God to answer specific prayers that our brothers and sisters pray. And... You know, we can do that because people give and Amen. support those projects. And when you can go into a situation like that and say, yes, we can help with that ministry. Yeah. We can make that ministry possible. Uh, and then to see a pastor just break down and, and it it really, it impacted me too. It was like, wow, here's this guy who's been persecuted. He's sharing the gospel in a restricted nation. And yet this has moved him to the point that that we can just say yes to that. What are some of the needs? And I know we can't talk a lot of specifics (laughs) because we don't want to create trouble for any of the people that we visited with. What are some of the needs of the church, and how is VOM responding to help meet those needs? Well, I I think, as it is in all of our fields, the number one request we get is for prayer. Would you please pray for us? Would American Christians, would our brothers and sisters pray for us? Especially after the recent hurricane, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of issues uh, in Cuba. The number one requests we get besides prayer are typically resources. Can you help us, you know, reach people on our island? This has been a very unique movement of God in, you know, in Cuba over the last maybe decade, and. When you think about the fact that basically all Christian literature is illegal, even things like tracks, you know, here in America, sometimes they tracks, they did that back in the 70s. We know that in Cuba, with everything being restricted, even a gospel track that someone may hand you is very valuable. And, and we heard stories from pastors saying, yeah, we hand out tracks, and then if we get toward the end of the month and we don't have any left, we'll go back to the people we gave it to and say, hey, brother, I gave you that track a couple of weeks ago. Have you read that yet? If you have, can I have it so I can give it to someone else? <laughs> we Which, need to recycle our gospel track. Yeah, so resources are a big thing. And then just helping pastors respond to the, the difficulties that they face are the, the really the two biggest things that we can do. One of the things, and I know you're a dad, I'm a dad, one of the things that impacted us was how the children pay a price for what their parents are doing for the kingdom. And again, we we can't talk a lot of specifics, but share about what that means for a pastor's child or an active Christian's child 
to have to pay for their parents' witness. Well, I, I think it's it is a a hard thing for us as as dads to think about. But we met with several pastors who, because of their faith, because of their witness, their activity for the gospel, their children have lost real opportunities, education, sports, different things, where simply because your dad's a pastor, you can't, you don't have access to to these things, and you know, I, I, I as we met those guys, I thought, what would, how would I feel if that were me? And and I remember I asked one of the pastors, "Do you feel bad about that?" And he paused for a moment and then he said, "No, not really. We all pay a price to follow Christ." And I thought that that's a pretty amazing answer, brother. And the children know that's that was the thing. It's like the children know we're going to have to pay a price. I think of one brother that we met. the The opportunity that he was pursuing, they said, "Oh, your talents are outstanding." It's your politics that are the problem. Sorry, you can't be involved. We heard stories of of young people who went to school, got straight A's right up till the day of graduation. And then they said, oh, you won't be able to get your diploma. We're so sorry. Yeah, you won't be able to get your diploma unless you kneel to, to a statue of Che Guevara. And the refusal to do that meant you can't graduate. You can't graduate. No diploma. All the work you've put in is gone. Uh, I think... If you think about that as parents, when you see your children go through that, the amazing pressure that you would feel, but also the amazing uh, understanding of what it means to follow Christ, and your children know that. Yeah. I asked one of the pastors, one of his, his children, how do you feel about that? I mean, this wonderful opportunity that you will not have because your dad's a pastor and you're a Christian, how do you feel about that? And he said, it's okay. Just like his father, he said, "We all pay a price." And I, I, how a you know a young man says that when he has the world in front of him, but he's never going to get to experience it because of his faith. One of the churches that we visited was uh, a place where the pastor had been murdered. Um, they don't know a lot about that case. They don't know a lot about what actually happened, how that happened. But that church hasn't been slowed down at all. Not at all. What did we learn or, or kind of share a little bit about that visit? And, and his sons now are actively leading the church, even knowing, again, they're spies in the service every week, but their own father was murdered. They know that their lives are at risk. I think they just have a different view of life and ministry than than I have sometimes. I, th- I think— yeah, this happened to our dad, could happen to us. But we have this this window of opportunity to impact our people, this nation, with the gospel. And we're going to seize it, and we're going to do everything that we can. And they do, honestly, amazing, kind of, I like to call it exploits for God. I've met with those brothers several times, and I always walk away from those meetings just amazed. Other leaders in Cuba have said, this is the future of the church, Right. The future of the church and and working with almost no resources. This is something else that struck me about being there. You know, when we were there, there was a gas problem, and so there were long lines to get gas. Uh, we heard stories of of going into restaurants and them saying, "Okay, well, all we have tonight is ham, <laughs> ham, no bread, <laughs> ham. Would you like a ham sandwich?" <laughs> and that's the way they live. Not not even knowing you know, where their 
meals are going to come from. And yet they continually serve, they continually put themselves at risk to spread the gospel. I think it's just a a Jesus-centered approach to life. I think that that is the, in many of the leaders that we work with, that is their focus. It's on Christ, what Christ has called them to do. The rest of the things are just details. For me, sometimes all the details become the focus and Jesus becomes kind of... And we say, Jesus, bless the details. Yes, please. (laughs) So I think for me, that's the challenge of the Christians that I've met in Cuba is how how they are able to make Jesus the absolute center. Now, we talk about that a lot, and we'll say that on Sunday morning, but they do that on Tuesday afternoon when there is no gas for the car or when the ham sandwich is only ham. Still for them, Jesus is the center. Jesus is everything. I remember we met with a brother. We were going to go on a trip in Cuba, and we had to go to his house simply so he could pray for us. He said, please come, I want to pray for you. And I don't know if you remember that prayer, but that was an amazing time of just being prayed for by a man that I respect maybe as much as anyone I've met in the world. So for many of us here, we'd say, oh yeah, I'll be praying for you. No, he said, please come to my home. We need to pray. We're going to pray. Yeah. And the strength of the believers there, particularly the leadership that has been so tried by fire over the last... 25 years. These are people who've been detained multiple times. They've been interrogated. I remember the pastor who told us that in the midst of interrogation, the interrogator let slip, oh, doesn't your daughter walk to school every day on Fifth Street? Just like, hey, we we know your daughter walks to school every day. We could take her out any time of the day or night, any day we want to. Think about that, pastor. You know, now answer my questions. And the pressure that they live under, but we know pressure creates diamonds, and it really is doing that within the Cuban church. I know we can't talk a lot of detail, but what else is Voice of the Martyrs doing to support the church in Cuba? We do a lot of ministry to children. The children are the number one target of the government for indoctrination. You have to go to school, and you have to go to a state school, so they are taught communism all day long. I remember one of my first impressions in Cuba was, this is more communist than China. So it's very communist. So those yeah, kids are bombarded. They don't, they're not into the whole commercial thing. No. They, they just want communism. Yeah. So, so we try to do what we can to come alongside parents and families to minister to their children. We're helping equip and train pastors and leaders across Cuba. These guys are under so much pressure and so many difficulties that if we can bring them aside for a little while and encourage them and, and strengthen them and, and help them lead well, we, we think that has a tremendous impact on the church overall in Cuba. Of course, literature, as you've said, Bibles, and then any other really resources that they need. You know, we try to be very field-driven, so we're communicating with these folks all the time, and as needs come up, whether that's persecution uh, whether that's resources that they need, whether that's we need Bibles, whatever it is that they need, we stand ready to help them with that. We're also trying to work after the hurricane to help reestablish some churches on the island. That's in the early stages of getting off the ground. We'll see where that goes. 
and I love, and we talk about this often, the fact that we're field driven. We don't we don't come to Cuba and say, okay, we've got twelve things we can do. Which one do you want? We come to Cuba and say, you're doing the gospel work. How can we help? What what can we do to further that? The way I describe the job of our international team is, we get to sit at the table with. Uh, as I affectionately call them, rock stars in the kingdom, these guys of whom the world is not worthy, sit down and say, brother, please, what is the vision God's given you for your people? And then we just simply listen. And we listen for places where his vision and our purposes overlap. And at that point is where we can partner with them. But we are certainly the junior partner in any relationship. And we have such great senior partners. That, That was the thing that struck me about the trip was just the the quality of the people that we're working with and the faith, the faithfulness of these guys. Again, every week they go to church knowing there are spies sitting in their congregation waiting to get them arrested, and they keep going, and they keep loving those people. Well, the thing that stood out to me was the churches. So in so many countries, including America, we have all these different denominations, and maybe we'll work together, but not often. And, and we're kind of suspicious of that denomination or this denomination. And you simply don't see that in Cuba. We met with leaders from all kinds of denominations, back, church backgrounds, and they all know each other. They all love one another. They work together for the sake of the kingdom. And they help us connect across denominations. Oh, you guys should talk to so-and-so. He's at that church. Yeah. What do you bring home from Cuba? What did you bring home from Cuba that that maybe impacted you in a new way? I, I think as as a leader here at VOM, uh, a strong reminder of in the midst of all the work that we're doing all over the world, sometimes I get lost in the vastness of it. And to be reminded with that pastor who cried, right? that no, these projects we're doing are impact individual brothers and sisters. They are the answers to their prayers. So that was a, a great reminder for me as, as a leader in our international ministries department, and I've talked to our staff about that. I, I think for me personally, just the reminder that Jesus is enough, that if you strip all the luxuries and the, the comforts that we have here in America, like this happened in Cuba, Jesus is still enough. The church still thrives, and there is joy, and there is peace in the midst of that. Amen. We've been talking today on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Jonathan Ekman. He is our Vice President for International Ministry here at The Voice of the Martyrs USA. He and I had a chance to visit Cuba earlier this year, and we've been talking a little bit about some of the amazing saints that we met and some of the work that the Voice of the Martyrs is doing in that nation, at least the parts of it that we're allowed to talk about publicly. As always, you can log on to vomradio.net if you want to listen to this interview again or listen to any of the other episodes of VOM Radio. We've had Jonathan on before, so you can search and listen to the other interviews with him I particularly commend to you his message about the gospel wildfire. Just go to vomradio.net and search for gospel wildfire to pull up that episode. And if you'd like to give financially to support some of the work that we've talked about this week, we'll give you a link to give to VOM's Frontline Ministry Fund, which helps to fund things like the project that made that brother in Cuba cry tears of joy. 
You know, this is Thanksgiving weekend, and one of the things that I'm thankful for is you, the people across the United States and literally around the world that listen each week to the Voice of the Martyrs radio. I'm thankful when I go to one of our VOM Advanced conferences and someone will come up to me and say, hey, I listened to the podcast, or they'll tell me a particular interview or a guest that was a blessing to them. You know, when we sit down in the studio to record these interviews, we pause before every single one of them to pray, and we pray specifically for you, the people who are going to hear that conversation. We pray that God will use our words and the stories that we tell to bless and encourage and challenge our listeners. And so I'm so thankful when I hear reports of how God is answering those prayers. So thank you for listening, and thanks for sharing with us how God is using VOM Radio and the stories of our persecuted family to inspire your faith. Next week, we're going to learn about the country of Bangladesh. It's one of the world's most densely populated countries, and it's a place where Christians, especially Muslim converts, face persecution. We'll hear from one of those converts next week right here on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.